This episode is sponsored by The Mighty. The Mighty is a safe, supportive digital community for people facing health challenges and the people who care for them. With over 3 million registered users and 90 million monthly views and shares of stories and videos, The Mighty has a deep reach of been there too stories, irrespective of where you may be on your health journey. Communities on The Mighty talk each day about more than 6,000 topics, from health conditions to weekly challenges. Celebrate wins, ask for help, or be the support someone needs to get through the day. Visit www.themighty.com. On this episode, we have Mike Prath. Mike was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and studied English at the College of William & Mary. He followed his passion for broadcast journalism to New York, where he worked for ABC News, eventually focusing on abcnews.com. He won an award for online journalism for his coverage of Kosovo, an assignment for which he was the sole team member on the ground. He moved to NBC, where he worked on The Tom Brokaw Show and MSNBC.com. He shifted to the New York Times, where he was involved on both the print side and managing the homepage for NewYorkTimes.com. He spent a few months living in and reporting from Saudi Arabia after losing some friends during 9-11. Upon his return to the U.S., he worked for AOL and then moved to Los Angeles to manage 30 digital properties for a startup called Spin Media. After grappling with a health issue for his daughter, Mike launched an online platform enabling families to interact with other families facing similar health issues called The Mighty. Mike, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start from the beginning, Mike. I think uh, you share that you were born and, and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. That's right. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a Cleveland kid. I always, those are all my sports teams. I got a lot of family back there. Both my parents are from there. So, um, so yeah, that's that's still my hometown. Got you. And um, were your parents, uh, uh, what, what line of work were they in out of curiosity? So I, uh, my mom was a nurse and my dad was, uh, he was a salesman for Hallmark Cards for over 30 years. So they've since um, semi-retired. They live down in South Carolina now. Um, I, my dad does a little bit of real estate um, and my mom still does you know, some nursing education, both part-time. Gotcha. Okay, nice. And do you have siblings? I do. I've got three siblings. I have a brother, younger brother, who's living in Dubai right now um, as a teacher. And I have a sister uh, who lives out here in Los Angeles, um, where, where I'm at. Um, and she's actually a, a professor who used to be at USC, is now at Georgetown. And then I have a younger sister who is um, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Got you. So based on that, are you second? In I'm, second, I'm, I'm second. It goes my older sister, uh, then me, and then another sister, and then my brother. Gotcha. So growing up uh, with these uh, three other siblings um, in Cleveland, what, what were some of the things you did that uh, for fun or, or types of books you were reading? Just love to hear about that experience. Yeah, so I was, um, all of us played sports. My dad coached us in every sport, basketball, soccer, um, you know, uh, baseball. Um, he was, uh, I don't know how he did it with, because <laughs> I try to help, um, you know, t-ball and things like that for one of my kids. And and um, I don't know how he coached all four of us, but we, we were definitely a sports family. We were always doing that. Um, and then, yeah, I was always into books and writing and reading and, and those kinds of things um, from a you know, pretty young age. So um, it's funny because I'm now uh, I'm still purchasing some of the books that I grew up with, with like the choose your own adventure books for, for oh, my yes. kids. Yeah. And a lot of those that I loved riding my bike to the library and checking out, you know, when I was a kid, I'm now, you know, um, I'm getting them off Amazon now for, for, for my own kids. 
it's a fun uh, deja vu uh, experience, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm sure I, I did um, model rockets uh, when I was a kid, and I uh, I just bought one for my son, and yeah. so it's so fascinating to, to to see the changes from back then to today, <laughs> and and what's remained constant. It's just it's uh, so intriguing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm still friends with some of my buddies from back then, and I'm just sending them shots of what the rockets look like now. It's like our minds are blown. <laughs> <laughs> 30 well, years later they, go, they probably go a little, a little higher a little faster than they did back then well and also like uh we had to do the fins using balsa wood yeah. and, uh, <laughs> now it's um an injection molded plastic piece that you just fit onto the tube of the body and i'm like oh my god this is so much easier <laughs> it, was, it was a messy proposition <laughs> we were growing up um so uh, you chose William and Mary for, mm -hmm. for college um, and uh, you studied English and, and psych. Is that yeah. uh, sort of an outcrop of the passion you shared just now about reading and, and writing? Yeah, it was one of those things where um, English was always something I was you know, into, in term, again, just literature and all that. And so um, I was thinking about that when I, when I got to college. I wanted to go to a, um, a liberal arts school that felt like the, you know, the right mode for me. I wanted to get out of Ohio as much as I love it. I just wanted to experience something else. So I went down to Williamsburg, Virginia, at William and Mary, and, um, and psychology ended up being, I just had a great professor. Um, and so I just continued to take his classes every nice. semester, no matter what he taught in psychology. <laughs> and, um, and then by, I think the second half of my junior year realized I only needed to take a couple more psych classes to double major. <laughs> So, um, and so ended up, uh, yeah, double majoring in English and psychology. Nice. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, actually, uh, I have a friend who was there on the same time. Do you by chance know a Michael Alexis? I don't. Okay. It's not a big school. There's only about 5,000, you know, people there, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I know your buddy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty, still pretty sizable. We were, we went to high school together. So I was just curious. And I was class of 96. So we're about the same, same time frame. Um, so uh, I, I'm curious, uh, Mike, um, the desire to move into broadcast journalism, was that something that was peaked before you went to college or during your time in college? I think um, I, I was very interested in media in general. Mm. And um, I, uh, I, I, going to school, um, I paid for most of it through student loans. And I remember getting a, um, this was back before email, getting a letter in the mail from my mom, which was a, um, she was just kind of reminding me in a kind of a passive aggressive way that I was going to pay off all these loans. And it was just a newspaper clipping and it, it showed the salaries of different majors. And um, English was next to last, the only one that, Below that was philosophy <laughs> and, and it was just really a reminder that hey you're gonna have to get a job you're gonna have yeah. to figure out what's next and um, and that actually inspired me to start looking at internships and so between my junior and senior year I applied for 40 different internships at um, all kinds of things related to, to media so um, uh, whether that was film or journalism uh, and everything in between. And um, so I uh, only got one offer of those 40 and it happened to be at ABC News up in New York okay. City to nice. work on a documentary unit that they had that produced biographies for A&E and oh, things yeah. like that. And so, um, so, so that is what I did. I moved up there the summer between uh, junior and senior year 
I, um, it was an unpaid internship. So I, I lived at the Columbia dorms up there and, um, and found some different jobs. I worked as an usher at Shakespeare in the park and some other things that would just help, you know, defray the costs um, of living up there because I wasn't getting paid by ABC. But that was really my entry point into that. And at the end of that internship, um, the woman who ran that unit said uh, to, you know, if I wanted a job to come back after I graduated. And as soon as something opened up, you know, she would, she would give it to me. So I ended up moving back to New York after graduating, waited tables for a while until, oh. until that a position opened up. And then um, she was good on, his, on her word and hired me. And that was kind of my, that's how I got my foot in the door. That's great. Well, congrats on, on doing that. Uh, and it was, of course, a, a paid position at that point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I could finally, and I, I still don't know how I survived living in Manhattan. And I think that first salary was something like $24,000 a year. Wow. Um, but somehow, you know, you, you jam a bunch of guys in a one bedroom apartment and <laughs> figure it out. You, you get by. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, in junior positions, you know, uh, you're not there that much uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of work yeah yeah it's kind of just a place to uh sleep and uh get cleaned up yeah. um uh, if, if you're doing new york properly as they say <laughs> yeah. um well that's that's fantastic and so during your time there um you actually um were uh, singled out you won an award for your coverage of kosovo share with us yeah. about that experience so, so i moved from the documentary unit um after working on a couple films there um, over to abcnews.com, which was a very new thing. This was when the dot-coms were kind of, you know, up and growing. And um, and so that actually, I was very fortunate to be there at that time because they were giving people a lot of opportunities that like as a young, you know, journalist, I never would have gotten in other, you know, areas. And um, I had done some uh, reporting. I had, uh, you know, previously actually pitched a, a trip to an editor to, um, I was going with friends to running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, and ended up filming it and, and writing stories that did really, really well. And um, just being, you know, abroad and, and having to figure out the technology of how to get, you know, video back and how to do all those things. Um, I think that helped me because when the time came when the Kosovo, Kosovo war broke out, um, they selected me to, you know, be the person on the team to go over and kind of be a one-man band. I was shooting video, wow. doing audio, taking photos, writing stories, doing, Amazing. you know, all kinds of different things. And I think they just felt comfortable with me as a, I was, I don't know, 23 or 24 years old at the time. But I was, I had familiarized myself with all the different things that I could do there and, um, and the technology side. And so um, I think they felt comfortable, you know, sending me over there, but, um, but yeah, the re reporting that I did and a lot of the editing was back, you know, in New York, but um, won the top prize in online journalism um, that year for, uh, for reporting. That's really great. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Uh, nicely done. Um, tell us about the transition from ABC to uh, MSNBC. So yeah, when I left ABC, um, I went over to NBC and it was, uh, I really liked the role because it was split between television and, and internet. So I worked on the Tom Brokaw show, got to the same room with them, working on the show every night. Um, and then what I would do is um, kind of translate some of the things that they were doing onto the web and also do a little writing for the show and, you know, finding components, things that we were doing online at msnbc.com and um, writing little, you know, bits for, for Tom Brokaw to read, you know, to send people to the website and, and things like that. So um, I like the balance of being able to work both in television as well as on the internet. 
Yeah, that's really great. Um, you were there for a few years and then um, you transitioned to the New York Times. Yep. So when I left NBC, um, I actually, uh, I had the, I had the travel bug. I, you know, I, I was a journalist, but I felt like I was still really sitting in a cubicle most days. Um, and I really thought journalism, journalism was about getting out in the world and talking to people and, um, and all of that. And so I actually um, left NBC to do a, a backpacking around the world trip for, I don't know, four or five months um, and got a deal with my hometown paper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, to write a series of articles that would essentially pay for the trip. Uh, I was staying at five, $5 hostels, so it didn't cost much. <laughs> you know, for my travels. Um, and I could, you know, back then freelancers could get paid a, a fair amount, certainly more than they can now. And, um, and so uh, I, I, you know, did that. I was actually in Vietnam on 9-11. Um, wow. and, uh, and so when that happened, I unfortunately, you know, lost some friends um, that day. And I, you know, ended the trip and wanted to come home. So as soon as flights opened up, came back home, and then I was just looking for what my next, you know, role was going to be, next job. And so I, I reached out to uh, the New York Times, and um, they had an opening for an overnight editor. And I said I would do anything to get into the New York Times. So, um, so I, I, you know, joined there and worked. Uh, I think it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday from. I think it was 9 p.m. to 9 a.m., something like that. Um, but it was great because, again, on those hours, the calls that would come in from the international correspondence and all that, I would take because nobody, nobody else was there. Um, and so I got to end up, I ended up being able to do more because of that shift. Um, and then, uh, and I, I grew at the Times and ended up running the homepage of, you know, nytimes.com and uh, got involved with some of the, um, on the newspaper side as well. Uh, it was, it was a great opportunity. I learned a tremendous amount working there. No, that's great. Um, and then was it while you were at the New York Times that you um, ended up spending some time residing in Saudi Arabia? Yeah. So I, at one point went to, <laughs> I went to the head of HR at the New York Times and said, what do I have to do to become the Middle East correspondent? Um, and I was very, very far away from that role, right? This is, okay. you know, I, was, I was relatively junior. And, and she said, well, you could, um, she said, we could, you know, potentially move you into a metro reporting job. You do that for five years and you become a national reporter for five or 10 years. And, and then maybe that job opens up. Um, and that's not, I don't have that metabolism, right? To kind of wait and, and all that. <laughs> and she said, or you could just move over there. And you could be, you know, stringer for us. Um, and um, I ended up finding a fellowship um, uh, where I wanted to write about what was happening in Saudi Arabia, particularly the youth culture there, because I felt like, you know, in reading up on everything that was happening with 9-11 and extremist Islam and, and all of those things, um, I really wanted to get at the core of what was actually you know, going on. And so I got funded uh, for a journalism fellowship to spend a year working on this project. And as part of that, I had to get to Saudi Arabia. And it's very difficult for a journalist to basically get in. And so I, I needed to get a visa. And part of that, um, to do that, I ended up taking a job actually at a, um, a newspaper in Saudi Arabia, English um, language newspaper, and worked very closely with the Times while I was over there. I worked closely with the uh, with the Middle East correspondent at the time who was um, you know, based, you know, based over there. So uh, again, it was, a, you know, great learning experience, you know, to be in a very different place, 
Um, I was, you know, studying Arabic, which I never got very, very good, good at, but three hours a day of it. Um, and, uh, and again, working in a very, very different place. Um, and so again, it was, it was a, it was a great experience, but I did re realize, um, that in terms of working with, you know, closely with that Middle East correspondent, that it was not really the job that I wanted. It was in my own mind, I was kind of like this glorified role, but in reality, um, you know, he was telling me, he's like, I'm in my forties. It's probably too late for me to have a family. I travel, you know, 250 days a year. Um, and he wasn't a particularly happy person. <laughs> um, at that point I was, I was actually engaged at the time to my, to my wife who I've actually known since high school. And, um, uh, it just, you know, we wanted to have kids and all that. And I, I thought that the role that I really wanted there long-term was not really conducive to the life I actually wanted with my wife and having kids. So at that point decided, that uh, if I wasn't going to pursue that route, um, digital was probably the way to go. Digital media was blowing up. And, um, and so that's the kind of the direction that I took um, after leaving there. Got you. Um, did your wife reside with you in Saudi Arabia? No, she didn't. She didn't come. So we got engaged and about a month after that. I, I found out that I got the visa. Wow. So planned the wedding in like a month and then I went over there and then I came back a few weeks before we got married. <laughs> so, um, oh, yeah. And how long did you end up spending uh, in Saudi? There um, probably five months or so, something, something like that. Okay. All right. Um, and uh, you mentioned how you lost some friends during 9-11. Uh, Do you think it was the loss of those friends that kind of inspired you to uh, ask the very natural, intuitive, journalistic question of why and led you to uh, that posting? Yeah, I've, I've always been a very curious person. And um, I think that the, the skills that I learned as a journalist was you investigate things, you dig deeper, you, you know, you go further, you talk to more people. And um, I was very interested in how people could um, reach a point where, you know, as a suicide bomber, or that you're this angry, or that you really believe that this is right. And so the questions that I had around that, I, I continued to dig into. Um, and it really looked, you know, I began looking at the education of um, young people, right. and, um, and particularly the, you know, extremist, you know, kind of sect of um, uh, this Muslim faith, faith was, um, really coming from a specific, you know, particular school of hobbyism in Saudi Arabia. And so I wanted to, I wanted to understand that better. I wanted to understand what's actually happening here where, you know, a human being who's born completely innocent would, would become someone who would want to actually do this to people. Yeah. And, um, and so that's, that's, it is, you know, kind of what drove my interest there. So fascinating. You know, Mike, I've always felt like um, there's a, a, a faceless enemy component to uh, any kind of uh, racism, um, where if you take the identity away and you don't think of them as a, a brother or a sister or a father or a mother or a son or a daughter, but they're a faceless enemy. And then, of course, if you're a marginalized if you're in a marginalized demographic and you, then you can blame this uh, faceless group for your troubles in life and just say, okay, it's that, that group that, that did it. Yep. Um, it just feels like that's always a, a key ingredient to, uh, 
for, for racism and that kind of uh, activity. Absolutely, I, I think um, unfortunately we're seeing we're seeing that in the U.S. more than I think we have in, you know in a long time. Um, but I agree with you. I think it's um, by introducing someone that can you know can be an enemy and it's, it's the cause of your problems or something like that. That is a way that I think it really spreads. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what, if you actually think of folks as neighbors um, versus they're on the right or on the left or they're you know different in some way, um, I think most people. You know, if you're, you know, let's say in the U.S., Republican or Democrat or far right or far left, and your neighbors, I bet most of them actually get along because they have some mutual respect and they may, you know, be nice to their, each other's kids or whatever that is. Um, but when you become just a, an idea or something like that, um, that's where I think it comes out. And it's way easier to be mean over social media than it is actually face to face, you know, with someone Um but yeah, I've always believed that if you could just think of people as your neighbors, yeah, um, yeah. this, you know, I think the world would be a much kinder, <laughs> kinder yeah. place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so we, we know how to do it. It's just the execution of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so uh, thank you, Mike, for, for sharing this fascinating um, uh, adventure that, that you, you went on. I appreciate your, your uh, telling us the details of it. So you, you come back stateside and um, you work with AOL and, and Spin Media. And are you still in New York at this point? Um, I was in New York at, uh, at AOL. So I actually um, joined AOL. Um, again, when I decided that I wanted to focus on the digital, you know, digital media, um, this was when AOL was, you know, quite a powerful place that reached an enormous amount of people. Right. So when I joined AOL, um, I joined to uh, be part of the news team and and really um, lead the homepage of AOL, which at the time was getting, you know, 30, 40 million hits a day wow. to manage the content there. And what I loved about it was I actually had real-time metrics there. And so I could actually see what people were clicking on. And, and now that seems like, of course, everyone has that, but this was... <laughs> When I was at the no. New York Times, we didn't have anything like that. I wouldn't know until the next day the performance of stories and things like that. So um, I learned a lot there and ended up uh, moving from Virginia up to New York um, uh, to, to uh, kind of follow the, the head of content um, who was moving up there as well. And, um, uh, and then I ended up, you know, um, becoming editor-in-chief of AOL News. Um, we hired a lot of people. We grew the team, and um, and I left there. Uh, I'm trying to think when it exactly when it was, but it was. Um, I'd reached a point where, after working in a number of news organizations and and doing all that, I was um, interested in things outside of just news. Yeah. And I had an opportunity to join a startup in Los Angeles, um, uh, running a number of different websites that were. Uh, more in the pop culture space around music and entertainment, things like that. But it was less about the content for me and more about, um, you know, kind of growing as a manager and learning really the startup world as, as well. And that, you know, put me in um, a good position, again, just learning the startup industry and, and all that to um, eventually, you know, kind of start my own, um, uh, my own company. Yeah, no, fantastic. And that was about uh, eight or so years ago, seven, eight years ago? That you yeah, when I joined, yeah, when I joined the startup in LA, and then um, it was uh, five, six, I guess about six years ago when I started The Mighty. Right. Uh, and that was something that had been, you know, in the back of my head for several years, um, you know, raising a daughter with, with a, a rare disease and thinking, you know, 
just, you know, how do I help her? How do I help other folks? And recognizing that for my wife and me, we got the most help by connecting with other people. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, similar again to that, you know, being very curious of, of you, know, um, you know, how does this world work when you have a daughter who you, you don't know anybody else who has a condition like this? How do you get help? How do you, you know, find people? And, um, and it was that same kind of curiosity, I think, that led me to launching a platform that I thought could help a lot of other people too. No, that's great. And it's a perfect segue. Um, if you don't mind, Mike, I'd love for you to share with the audience about um, your, your daughter's experience, her, her diagnosis, and then kind of how that um, led you to launch the, the Mighty. Sure. So um, it was while I was working at AOL, my wife and I had our first kid. We have four now. We have a daughter and, and three boys. Um, and so um, our daughter was, um, she was struggling from very early on. We were first time parents, but we kind of knew in our gut something wasn't right, you know, um, within the first few months of her being born. Um, she didn't hit any anywhere close to the milestone she was supposed to hit. And, you know, we began to see more and more doctors to try to understand what wasn't what wasn't going on. Um, and they would agree with us that there were issues there, um, but no one could really get a diagnosis. Um, and so we actually didn't get a diagnosis until she was about two years old wow. uh, that she um, and it was, you know, again, after going up and down, seeing all kinds of specialists on the East Coast where we were living. Um, you know, we got a phone call from a doctor, a developmental pediatrician, who um, called and said that, um, yes, you know, that some test results had come back and that she had a, a very, very rare chromosome disorder. He didn't actually know what the name of it was at the time, wow. but told us enough about it and said, you know, just based on what I've read a little bit about this, I, I think it's unlikely that her mind will develop beyond that of a five-year-old. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's obviously, you know, very difficult news to, you know, to kind of get. Um, what made it more challenging was earlier that morning, um, my wife on that day, she was uh, 20 weeks pregnant with our, our, um, our second child. And uh, we were told that morning that um, he was missing a kidney and potentially had other issues. Oh, so good. we got that news in the morning and about an hour later after we got home, we get a phone call from a doctor telling us about wow. our daughter. Like, the, the, day. Yeah, the world really shifted that day for us. Um, and the thing that I did what most people did, I mean, after crying with my wife and, you know, we're trying to make sense of all this, um, I went to Google, right? And I started Googling and I, I did find the condition that she had. It was pretty clear what it was. And, um, and then, you know, but the medical information I was reading was not particularly helpful. I didn't understand it, you know, um, and, uh, but I ended up finding this old PDF file from, it was probably 10 years old that had um, six stories from parents uh, of kids with this condition. And wow. they were really these raw and honest stories about what they were dealing with. And it was hard to read them and learning about autism and kids having seizures 30, 40, 50 times a day. Um, at the same time, um, there was joy and humor in these stories, which surprised me. Um, it made me realize that if these parents could handle this, then my wife and I could too. And, um, and that was really, I mean, those stories in my mind were the first mighty stories that, that, that I read. I didn't create them, I read them. And um, it just was, it was so impactful. I didn't feel alone. I felt like there are other people out there. And, um, you know, I said, I remember telling my wife that, you know, I wish we could find these folks and go out for a beer with them, right? And just, just to talk to them, to listen, to see what, you know, they've been through and 
that would help us. So we got very involved with uh, a nonprofit organization that helps kids with this disorder. And um, we did end up having beers with a lot of those families over time. Um, and, uh, and, but in the back of my mind, there was always, you know, could we create a platform that would enable um, us to kind of get the, the help that we're getting? Could we get it for anyone facing any kind of health condition? Yeah. And um, there's so many moments that happen along the way. So, so that idea was in my head for several years. And um, honestly, what pushed me to starting it was, um, I think my wife just got sick of hearing me talk about it. <laughs> she, she said at one point, like, are That's we going really to do this or not? Right. Like, right. Um, and, uh, but I needed that, you know, the support from her. I was, you know, we were a single income family. It was my salary and she's a stay at home mom at that point. We had, at that point, when we started it, we had three children. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was a matter of, you know, really tapping into our life savings and saying, okay, we're just, I'm just going to do this. Amazing. I found, you know, some consulting gigs that would help pay the bills while I, you know, got the thing off the ground. Um, but without her kind of giving me, kinda, you know, a little bit of a kick in the butt and, and also just, you know, she's like, do you think you can be successful with this? Mm -hmm. And when someone actually asks a pointed question like that, and my answer was yes, I said, I think I, think I can pull this off. Um, it makes it a lot easier to go ahead and start it. And um, so that's what, you know, that was, again, five, six years ago when we, when we launched. That's fantastic. Um, uh, what really is highlighted for me, Mike, is just the significance of the almost salve that um, finding the this group of six parents who had talked about the condition was uh, on a day like that where you had to hear this very uh, difficult news. Um, but it, your belief in that and the power of that is really what compelled you to, uh, to launch The Mighty. Um, so share with us at what point did you decide, okay, I don't have to do these consulting gigs anymore. This is... Uh, this is uh, it. yeah. standing on its own. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was four or five months in. So I had hired um, the top writer at Huffington Post, who was a 23-year-old woman who was wow. just fantastic. I mean, I showed her what we wanted to do. A, a friend introduced me to her. It was her former manager and said, um, he just said he had great things to say about her. And so I, I met her up and, and um, just showed her what I wanted to do. And she looked at the mock of the site and said, it's about people. And she just instantly got it, you know, and, and um, so I hired her, was paying her out of my savings account. And um, within about four months, four or five months of launching, um, we were getting about a half million readers a month. And um, without any kind of marketing spend, that's never been, you know, a, a big part of what we've done. And at that point, I got introduced to a friend of mine who was actually in a fantasy baseball league of mine, introduced me to a woman named Joanne Wilson, who um, many people know her husband, Fred Wilson, who's a, um, a big venture capitalist in, in New York City at Union Square Ventures. And um, I was introduced to her with the idea that, you know, he just said she's a super connector. Um, right. And uh, he said she doesn't like content businesses. She doesn't, you know, she, you know, all these th negative things of why she won't like the business I'm building, but, um, but said, you know, I think she'll buy into what you're trying to do and she could be helpful. And I had a conversation with her, I, you know, a lot of people talk about raising money, you, you build a pitch deck, you line up all these meetings. That's not at all how it worked for me. I just, I talked with this woman for 45 minutes, explained why I thought we could be successful, what we were doing, the traction we had. 
And um, she emailed me the next day and said, um, I can't get what you're doing out of my head. I think wow. you should um, start raising money and I would like to write the first check. Um, and, uh, and I figured if I was going to raise money, she would be a great person <laughs> to, to start with. Um, and so at that point, once I started bringing on investors, um, you know, cause she introduced me to a number of other people. Uh, I, um, I realized that, you know, to live up to what they wanted me to do as well and to be responsible and, and running this, I couldn't, you know, have these side gigs that I was doing as well. I had to be a hundred percent committed. Uh, and so that was the point where, you know, I, I went all in. I, I still remember the day, you know, her, her check came in and to the, you know, bank account and, uh, I was sitting in Bryant Park in New York working with my one employee at the time. And I texted my wife and I said, we don't have to put our own money into this anymore. <laughs> like it was, that was actually a really, that was, that was huge for us. You know, I was, I was staying in a pod in New York city to try to keep the bills, you know, low and to say, okay, we got our first check. And, and it was clear that, you know, she really believed that we could raise a significant amount of money and, and really go out there and she was going to be helpful. Oh, that's fantastic. And and since that uh, seminal moment, you've raised over $20 million. That's right. Um, not, not all at once, but over the course of several years, you know, the, the process, as you know very well, is um, you tell people, you know, you show people what you've done, the team you're building, the big idea, and, and then at each stage, you say what I'm going to do, and then you have to deliver on that. And then if you deliver on that, there's a good chance you can raise a next round and a next round. And, um, and so that's been, you know, the last several years has been ra raising that, um, you know, from a pre-seed round, which was at the beginning, to a seed round, to a Series A, to now, you know, we raised a Series B last year. Um, so it's just been the continued, you know, kind of growth of the community um, and, the, and then revenue as well, because that, you know, we didn't have any at the beginning. Um, we really focused on building the community and investors bought into that idea that what we were doing. But now, certainly at the stage that we're at, it is, you know, growing the community, but growing revenue as well. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Uh, I imagine one of the first few um, sort of uh, uh, topical areas you started with is was your daughter's um, situation. Uh, D15Q. Um, what were some of the other kind of disease states or, or issues that you, you launched with? So, um, so yes, my daughter has, I don't know if I said it earlier, but it's Duke 15Q syndrome, um, which is a, it's a uh, extra genetic material on the 15th chromosome on the Q arm of that. And that's responsible for all the issues, you know, that she has. She's basically wired differently. Yeah. And um, now there weren't going to be enough people in that community to grow this into a massive thing. But we did, um, I was very, at that point, connected to the rare disease community. So we did have a lot of um, rare disease type content on the site. Um, although it wasn't intentional, what happened was um, a lot of mommy bloggers really bought into what we were doing. They were already writing their own blogs, but they saw the value in actually getting their content on the Mighty, which was at that point reaching a lot more people. And, um, and you know, if someone was interested in, you know, autism and then there's some kind of educate, like there's different areas that kind of, you know, bled in together. Yeah. And so um, the mommy bloggers kind of bought in first. And so there was a lot of, um, parenting issues, right, right, with with kids with all sorts of different, um, you know, diseases or disabilities. And, uh, and then we had a woman in at Syracuse, um, who was writing content for us around mental health. And, and every time she sent in a piece of content, you know, as a contributor, 
she would give us some ideas on things that we should do with the mental health community. And eventually we just said, why don't you work for us? You know, like, like you do it, you come yeah. here and actually, you know, build it with us. Again, yeah. we're still only a few employees and, um, and she did, and she's still here, you know, today. Uh, she now oversees the entire contributor network where we have, you know, close to 15,000 writers. Um, and we have millions more people contributing more of the user generated content, but we, we started really as a publisher. Um, and then what we saw was really high engagement levels. And what we recognized was we actually had to shift from being a pure publisher into more of a social media network um, and or a social network. Um, and so we invested first in content to kind of grow the community and then started investing really in the technology side to build a real platform where people could share their experiences. And um, we essentially had to hand the tools over to these people who were you know, sending in Word docs that we would you know, publish on our, our website um, to really just giving them the tools where we, we could get out of the way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, what were some of the moments where you kind of saw an acceleration of growth or kind of a, a nice boost in uh, you know, sort of the community stats? So there were there were definitely particular moments where we just saw the massive spikes that uh, we learned from. Um, after we got up to that, you know, half million million readers a month, um, you know, we were at that plateau for several months, and then um, we had a, we published a story that went viral. And when I say viral, um, we had I think six million visits on that one story in a in a twenty four wow. period. Uh, when we looked at Google. Yeah, when we looked at Google Analytics, um, every country around the world that Google Analytics tracks, someone from that country had read the story in a 24-hour period, um, which was amazing. Um, and it was it was actually a story about um, it was a mom of a child with Down syndrome, um, and it was just her moment. She had it at checkout. You know, she's at a grocery store, and the the clerk, um, who didn't know much about Down syndrome and all this, but said. Um, made some kind of crass remark to her that, you know, she didn't have to have a kid like that as if like she could have gotten an abortion or something like that. Oh, wow. And, um, and so she wrote about like how she wanted to reach across and slap <laughs> this kid, yeah. um, but how she tried to handle that situation. And I think it just spoke to so many people. There was, um, you know, there was certainly the abortion angle that I think there was a component of that that helped it go viral. We had, you know, I think some pro-rights groups, you know, doing things on that, but it was also so many people that were just parents, I think, yeah. that were, you know, kind of angry at that type of moment, but that, that story went viral. And what we recognized was, you know, we were getting about 10 or 15 new stories a day coming into us. And we continue to play with the language at the bottom of that story around like why someone should submit a story to the mighty. Um, and one of the things we, every 15 minutes we were trying new, you know, kind of new lines and we didn't have any tech built in that we could track much of this, but we could see the number of people actually, you know, going to a certain page to submit a story. And um, what we recognize is when we put in their, we asked people to write, instead of just saying, be a mighty contributor, write your story for us. We said, write a thank you. It was coming up on Thanksgiving. We said, write a thank you letter. Um, someone that has helped you on your health journey. Wow. And I think the specificity of that really helped because everyone knows what a thank you letter is. Everyone, you know, everyone's written them in the past. 
and we saw hundreds of submissions, you know, starting to come in and it made us recognize that we had to be more specific about what we wanted out of people to, you know, to send in. And that was a, uh, a big moment for us, not because of the traffic spike alone. I mean, that was great, but it, it was a, it was a lesson for us in terms of how to really grow this community in ways we hadn't considered before. Amazing. Wow. Um, well, kudos for the success. And then currently, how, you're at 3 million uh, members of the community. Yeah, so we have 3 million members. We, we look at this a few different ways. So uh, that's a registered user who has signed up and said, I'm interested in these conditions. I want to get these newsletters, things like that, um, and who actually participates in the community. Um, the content we produce, we've produced about 50,000 stories at this point from members of our community. And those have been, you know, um, read, you know, billions of times at this point. Um, so we've reached a whole lot more than those 3 million, but the, in terms of an active community base of people participating, and this is, you know, an over a hundred or, oh, sorry, over a thousand different health conditions, you know, at this point. Um, and so, uh, but we focus on that you know, uh, core base of users, um, because that that's who we're, we're really building it for. And we love the fact that these stories get out to so many more people. The reason we haven't had to put uh, real, a real marketing spend in any of this is the content really is our marketing, right? Like it gets out in front of people, people find it through Facebook, through Google. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, some small percentage of them say, hey, this is really for me, I want to be a part of this. And they, they sign up and become a part of the community. That's yeah, really fantastic. Um, what are the few like, largest communities or medical conditions that uh, people on the Mighty are, are reading about? So the largest, I'd say, bucket of conditions is in mental health. Um, so anxiety and depression are huge, um, and that's really grown since COVID-19. No surprise there. Um, but uh, that is, you know, probably 40% of our content revolves around mental health in some way. One of the things I've learned is that, you know, I used to look at mental health as, you know, or again, call it whether it's bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, you talk about specific conditions, you know, kind of as their own thing. And what we've realized is anyone dealing with any kind of health issue is dealing with some mental health challenges as well, just in terms of how you handle it and how you, you know, manage it. Um, and so I almost look now at mental health as almost an umbrella over all the other things, you know, people um, are dealing with. For instance, we found in, if you look at all of our cancer communities, um, I think it's 88% of people in those communities also are part of the anxiety or depression community. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we've worked with clients in the cancer space and we've been able to show them that, you know, that the top performing content in cancer is around the loneliness. It's not about medical treatments. Um, uh, and so we've just, you know, we've been able to, you know, we have tremendous amount of data now on how people are experiencing health in so many different ways. And it's, you know, that's where we've really seen mental health, you know, across all aspects, you know. Um, but mental health is the largest, and I'd say chronic conditions. Um, so conditions that are lifelong for, for a lot of people um, is the next largest bucket. And then probably rare diseases is the next one that I would say. And again, partially because that's where I started, you know, we've got um, a, a, a very, you know, large and growing community around um, all rare diseases. There's about 7,000 out there. We don't have all of them on our platform, but 
um, there's a lot, there's just not as many places for people to go. Uh, yeah, the key. yeah, there's a scarcity of information out there. So it's really wonderful that you're providing that, Mike. Yeah. So important. Um, you know, it's interesting, my, my daughter and I have had this conversation around uh, mental health and um, she, she's opted for a term mental wellness. Yeah, uh, to sort of talk about um, the like anxiety or depression or, or, or you know loneliness as crop stems from social distancing, as opposed to diagnosable yes. conditions that are traditionally what we see in, in a mental health um, capacity. And uh, extremely proud of her. She actually wrote an essay that uh, posted to Medium um, uh, after hearing one of the uh, guests I had on on, on the podcast. Um, uh, Bushra Baibano, um, who uh, completed the Seven Summit Challenge, meaning she climbed the highest mountain in every continent uh, on the planet. Um, just the, the, the mental rigor that she needed uh, to be able to do that. My daughter wrote uh, an essay about how that has inspired her. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a very timely, um, and, and everyone's just sort of thinking about this and, and then focused on it. So, um, uh, I'll share that, uh, that with you. Yeah, um, no I'm, I'm curious, our, our mutual friend, David Fox, did he come in after Fred Wilson's wife or prior to, uh, uh, just after, I think I was raising, um, uh, I think at the first round we ended up raising around six hundred thousand. We did it as a convertible note, um, um, which you know essentially means for people who don't know the venture industry, kind of converts into the next you know the next round um, in terms of valuation and all those things. And um, uh, so yeah, he was part of the you know kind of a, the the earliest uh, group of investors. Um, and again, I happened to be sitting next to him at a startup conference. We just started chatting and. Um, uh, he he really bought into what we were doing and said, you know, could I could I write a check? And <laughs> and uh, and I said, of course. You know, again, he has a he has a lot of background in healthcare and startups and all that. And I thought he could be valuable as well. So um, uh, so yeah, he came in at the same time. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating. Uh, I've done a fair amount of fundraising in my career, and and in particular for a fund that I managed for a while. Um, and what I've always found is that um, uh, the people whom you think at the outset are, are definitively going to be involved, they're certainly going to write a check, um, don't show up. But then you're surprised with where the funding actually comes from. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I had no experience on the fundraising side. So I didn't, you know, um, for me, it was just you know, explaining to folks what I, what I wanted to build and why I thought it would work. And, um, and I think some combination of my background and the idea itself. Um, and, you know, I think my enthusiasm for what we were, you know, doing came through and, uh, and that it was a, it was a really good formula. And of course, you know, as you, as your company grows, um, it becomes much less about the idea and much more about the execution of all of those things. And so, um, but as I go, if, if I look back through our kind of fundraising period, each deck that you put together and all that, they're really different stories along the, <laughs> along the way as you, as you build the company. 
No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, because I still function in that capacity as an, an angel investor. So I'm hearing stories all the time. I think um, what would have convinced me as well about uh, the mighty Mike is um, the personal narrative and the fact that um, this was really uh, a passion project that you were committed to based on your own experience. And that's, uh, that's the biggest, one of the biggest factors. Um, for, for why it, it was going to be successful. Um, and so uh, I always try, sort of try and look for that uh, <laughs> in the story. So um, kudos, um, you know, uh, for you, Mike, do you consider the mighty a success? I for do. You? I mean, it's, it's odd to say that it's has been around for, for a while now and I still feel like we're just at the beginning um, in terms of what we can build here. But the reason I, I would say I consider a success is because we've seen real impact from people. We get people posting every day, you know, on the platform about how much this is helping them or how much it has helped them. Um, you know, back when I could speak at conferences and, you know, those you know types of things, we could get together in, in person. Um, I've had so many amazing interactions with people who have come up to me and told me about one story that really changed how they thought about everything or, um, again, just all the ways that it has been helpful to them, people who grew so much confidence in terms of they'd never written anything, published anything before, who now, you know, have a lot of followers on our platform because they've, you know, published stories here. Um, and we've done some work with um, uh, Harvard and, and some other academic institutions to actually measure the impact, the, you know, health outcomes of people on our platform. And, and we've done that within particular disease states and things like that. Um, but what's very clear is that being part of our community is having a very positive impact on people's lives, on their kind of self-reported, how are they doing? Yeah. Um, and so for that alone, I would say, Yes, it's definitely been, you know, a big success. And then outside of the company itself, I think what we've tried to do just in general in healthcare is, you know, we, we are really trying to be the voice of a patient and caregiver. And I think um, when you look at healthcare in general, the more that we can shift toward the focus on the actual person um, who's being treated in some way, I think the better our healthcare system will be. And I do think that the mighty has, you know, maybe given this a little bit of a nudge kind of in that direction. We see way more publishers um, out there kind of um, copying our, our, approach of, of saying, hey, we're not just going to do medical information, we're going to do people's health experiences, like what they are feeling with the moments that have mattered to them, you know, what's worked for them. And, um, you know, I think that we were a little bit of a catalyst for that, you know, type of movement. So um, I feel very, you know, good about that as well. That's really great. Um, what's the vision from here, Mike, where would you like to take the mighty? So um, we obviously want to reach a lot more people. Um, um, I, I believe that right now about a third of our members are international, uh, but people are writing in, I think we've, people have written in 70 different languages right now on the platform. Um, but I don't think we're doing a good job supporting people, you know, really outside the U.S. as much or, or people in uh, at least writing in other languages. Um, and so that is a big part of it is support a lot more people and that would you know, include um, internationally. Um, we've got, um, you know, newsletters is becoming a much uh, a bigger thing for us. We will be starting a new daily newsletter that will go out to 
um, over 2 million people um, who've kind of, you know, opted in for the, the type of thing we're going to do for them. And um, that, I think, being able to reach them on a daily basis like that will be, um, will be big. Um, and I think from a, you know, a business perspective, we kind of started with more of an advertising type model. And we are shifting to, again, we didn't know when we started this that we were building this enormous database of how people actually experience health. And so productizing that, you know, for clients, we don't sell any personal information. Everything is anonymized. Um, And so we're protecting certainly, you know, uh, privacy issues and, and things like that. But I think that um, from a business perspective, we can build a much larger business by moving from more of an advertising type model into models around, again, the data research insights, you know, those types of models. And I think we can actually do a better job for community members by moving to that because we can show them those insights as well as to what other people with their conditions are dealing with and facing. So um, this past quarter, we actually reached about 40% of our revenue was coming in from the, the, the research side. Um, and that was, you know, that's continued to grow for us. So that, um, you know, I, I feel like we're heading in the right direction that way. That's fantastic. Um, Mike, this has been such a, a great conversation. I, I really just uh, am so impressed with what you've created. Congratulations on all the milestones you've hit. And uh, based on what you've shared, I know you're far from done. Um, and I'm excited to uh, be a part of the community, be one of the three million plus involved and really look forward to staying in touch and seeing the future milestones that you hit. And really just gratitude, uh, tons of gratitude. I'd love to express as a, a family who needed this and has benefited from it in the short time that I've become aware of it. But certainly, uh, you know, I remember deeply the need for it uh, when we went through our, our son's rare disease uh, issue. And um, really, solace only came from fellow parents um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wing of the hospital. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me on. And, and again, knowing that um, you get it, I think, a lot more than, than, than others might in terms of, you know, living through this as well. So um, I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.